Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Kit McIntosh to discuss his book, Neon Screams, How Drill, Trap, and Bashment Made Music New Again. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Kit McIntosh to talk about his book, Neon Screams, How Drill, Trap, and Bashment Made Music New Again. Kit, welcome to the show. Hi there. And so this book is really exciting. The... um. I guess the frontispiece has this big, big phrase and big, bold letters. They told you the future was finished. They lied. Okay, who's they, and why Why were they lying? Well, they is probably two two people in particular, although I think it's probably uh, they, their ideas are shared. They've become sort of an orthodoxy in certain music intellectual circles. Uh, but I'm thinking specifically of Simon Reynolds, who wrote the foreword to my book, and uh, Mark Fisher. Uh, and so they were both, uh, I guess, at the early turn of the 2010s, discussing ideas such as retromania or what was quite called the slow cancellation of the future. So they had this idea that uh, musical innovation had stalled, uh, that there was no more kind of pioneering music anymore, no more futuristic music, no more surprising music, uh, no more kind of paradigm shifts in music. Uh, and I, the reason I feel they lied uh, is because we're living right now through a golden age of a whole new type of music I call vocal psychedelia, which is all about the kind of the digitized voice uh, and that sort of thing. And autotune is the hero of this story, or maybe not the hero, but it's the analog to the samplers and the sequencers and the turntables that revolutionized previous generations of music. And yet autotune, and, and this was a tell. I, I had Simon on his show a while back to talk about Retromania, looking back at it after 10 years. And both of us agreed that there were a few genres that seemed like they were doing something that fit the sort of paradigm that people like Ed Ward had told us, here's what to look for. Ted Joy is another one who's a, who has these sort of guidelines. And mumble rap was a genre that we zeroed in on as this seems like something. Mumble rap or SoundCloud rap or trap or drill or whatever you want to talk about it. So I'm feeling kind of vindicated <laughs> for an old fart who literally turned off new music in 1991 and has been going back and catching up frantically um, since then. You know, Recently, as I've been doing this show, so on the one hand, I'm kind of like, okay, cool, I, I spotted this. And the reason I spotted mumble rap was I'm friends with a lot of middle-aged black academics on Facebook because one of my best friends on there is a middle-aged black academic. And she and her friends were consistently posting about how horrified and appalled they were at the antics of people like Kodak Black and Young Thug 
et cetera, et cetera. And how this isn't music. This is just auto tune. These guys can't rap. They're just mumbling. And I was like, if this is pissing off the old people so much, there must be something going on. Um, at the same time, I've been on this, you know, catch up, learning the whole history of disco stuff that I ignored as a, as a racist rockist back in the day in the nineties when I, you know, I was all about the white rock and roll. And so I've been, you know, doing this techno roll series, learning the history of disco, how DJs play a role. And now in the second part of it, going through Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash and learning all about jungle and all this stuff that seems new to me. But you're pointing out, dude, that's old. And quote, synthesizers and samplers have been sucked dry and now they're completely depleted. Tell us about autotune and why it's actually a force for change and good things in music. Well, I mean, the interesting thing with autotune is I think a lot of people uh, might assume that you basically get one sound out of it. It's a very homogenizing thing, which everyone gets that kind of sound that you might associate with an artist like T-Pain, which at this point would be about 15 years ago. So that kind of robot voice thing. Uh, so in, in Neon Screams, I explore actually that, no, that was just the, sort of the very beginning of all the different sounds you could get out of autotune. And so... If you go to the, you know, look at music in the Caribbean for the past few years, you've got a couple of different ways you can kind of uh, warp the effects of autotune. So you can either do it via kind of novel or extreme vocal performances, or you can do it, um, you know, using other digital effects that would in turn warp autotune or, of course, a combination of both. Uh, and so actually, I think it, it's so malleable and so diverse in actually the kind of sounds it can produce that instead of comparing it maybe to the vocoder, which you just get one sound out of, you're more thinking along the lines of synthesizers or samplers in that you can literally get kind of decades worth of innovations out of this thing that you can, or you say even the electric guitar, you know, so you had, you were talking about rock, you know, rock sounds very different in the sixties than it did by the eighties or the nineties. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think it's once you, uh, once you realize that autotune has this huge potential for a diverse array of sounds, then you can start seeing it is why it's been such a huge innovative force in music in the 21st century. And I've got to read a couple of snippets because I've enjoyed your prose so much. Um, so forgive me for stealing your lines, but this is too good. The digitally processed voice is the new medium of the magnificent. Vocal psychedelia is the omni-genre at the epicenter of our new musical mythology from ja Jamaica to Africa to America. And that brings me to my next question. You're basically talking about what's been called by music scholars the Black Atlantic. Tell us a little bit about that and how it ties into 21st century music. Well, I mean, this is interesting, actually, because... Uh... So because the book, the kind of rhetorical flavor of Neon Screams is a lot of it's sort of kicking against, you know, kind of the people older than me, the kind of, the, you know, so, yeah, you know, writers like Reynolds and Mark Fisher and all that. But actually, of course, there is a whole other angle which you could have gone with this book, basically going, this is a rejuvenation of what everybody loved and was excited about music in the 90s. So things of, yes, it's the kind of the Black Atlantic is, you know, that's kind of reared its head again in this magnificent way the kind of the kind of almost pulp science fiction like sonic science fiction you get in the music even the return of like ecstasy in the kind of zeitgeist or molly or mdma um so yeah so in terms of the black atlantic yeah i guess you do just have these things i do remember a friend once said to me uh, somewhat intoxicated admittedly that he, he kind of looked at jamaica and and america and like black london 
as these kind of different kind of scientific labs that are all racing to get to the future and at different times in history. You know, so maybe with Dub in the 70s, Jamaica would have been ahead. And then, say, with some of the dance music coming out of the UK in the 90s, it would have been the UK was the most sort of futuristic thing. So I think, yeah, at the moment, it's, uh, it's Jamaica that's taken the lead again. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Jamaican music. This is a little bit older. This is about 10, 11, 12, 13 years old at this point. This is Vibes Cartel, Last Man Standing. And after we hear this, we'll come back and you can tell us about Vibes Cartel and his significance. Broke you see and record. Don't run. Baba boy, don't run. B-boy, dress up like police. And I run like thief. Don't run. Baba boy, don't run. Big yard. We are the last man standing. Rifle shot, move the holy monkey. And that was Vibes Cartel, Last Man Standing. And of all the characters that I was introduced to in this book, Vibes Cartel might be the most compelling and the most frightening. Give us a quick summary. Who, what, when, where? Where does he fit in Jamaica's musical traditions? Why is he important? And where did he personally go wrong? Well, so Cartel, you've got a couple of things. So just uh, on a purely sonic level, I think he's kind of major... Um, influence in music is the introduction or the popularization of auto-tune in Jamaican music and in dancehall. Uh, you'd had a couple of people doing it every now and then, but he was the first one who really stuck at it and really got something amazing out of it. So that's his sonic influence, but he's actually uh, far bigger than that. He's kind of cultivated almost his quasi kind of cult personality in Jamaica. So he, uh, uh, so he, he, he was very controversial at the turn of the 2010s, not just for the auto-tune, but he, uh, he bleached his skin. So he's using chemicals to lighten his complexion, which is something uh, done in the sort of Jamaican ghetto, but it's very frowned upon, understandably, because it's a very racially contentious thing to do. People tie it back to uh, when Britain ruled Jamaica. There was a kind of caste system based on how light uh, people's skin tones were. So, of course, that's hugely controversial. He was breaking lots of sexual taboos at the time, particularly around oral sex. Um, that was another thing. He had these huge kind of wars or these clashes with big dancehall artists, so Bounty Killer and Mavado, and that ostensibly led to uh, fans murdering each other. Um, there was even a thing where the Prime Minister of Jamaica had to call him and Mavado together to have this kind of peace treaty. Um, you know, so it's this hugely controversial figure for many reasons. Uh, but then, of course, his biggest controversy was uh, in 2011, he was arrested uh, and in the longest trial in Jamaica's history, he ended up getting convicted of a murder. So he'd had an associate who um, who he believed had stole some of his guns, I believe. So the associate was called back to his house and three men, include, I believe, including dancehall artist Sean Storm, uh, murdered this guy and uh, yeah so Cartel's been in prison ever since but even so he's still been releasing music somehow and illegally um, and he uh, and he's still kind of maintained his place in the top of dancehall now for getting close to 15 years and so catch us up on the dominant Jamaican genres from say the 90s to now I've always kind of dipped in and out of, of Jamaican music loved ska reggae was okay couldn't really dig dub dancehall got me back into it but then Bashment 
had this big moment at the turn of the century where even I noticed, and I was deliberately not paying attention to music at that point in time, but um, Elephant Man and others had some big hits, and then Timbaland and other hip-hop producers that I was kind of following were picking up on it. And it sort of immediately, to me, took this turn that was off-putting. Tell us about that, like a quick summary of that history and where Vibes fits into it. Yeah, so in the 90s, you would have had a type of dance hall known as Ragga. Um, uh, and that evolved. And so Bashment is essentially another term for dance hall, but I suppose you'd more associate that with the 2000s or the 21st century. Um, yeah, and so dance hall with this huge kind of international success, as you say, in the early 2000s with artists like Element, Elephant Man and Sean Paul. And as you say, you had kind of, you know, the Neptunes and Timberland and uh, like Scott Storch and all that. Um, you know, being influenced by it over in America. Uh, then you had this very kind of, suddenly after being exposed out into the world, dance all became very insular again. So, um, and I think part of that was possibly the kind of war in dance hall between cartel and Movado maybe made it, it was a bit bellicose for the international market that maybe wanted something less aggressive. Um, and so, yeah, and uh, I think then, and so then on a sonic level, I think once you introduce auto-tune, you're then really beginning to actually, we're moving almost beyond dancehall, beyond bashment, beyond ragga, and we're, we're now talking about what in the book I refer to as vocal psychedelia. So I'm kind of, this is an almost a bit of a shadow genre, as I said, as you read, a kind of omni-genre, this kind of, this genre without a name, which is based on the extremes people can reach with auto-tune, and I think Cartel was the beginning of that. And if I can compare you to Simon Reynolds, who's a friend of the show and obviously a friend of yours from the right in the forward, this kind of reminds me of when he was diagnosing what he called dark core at the time, which turned out to have been less a genre than a transition from hardcore rave to, say, jungle and drum and bass. And I feel like you're playing around with that same kind of thing, where you're identifying something that's happening. Because on the cover of the book, and I assume your publishers had something to do with it, you're talking about names that are at least familiar to me, drill, trap, and bashment. But all of those are things, those are all words I've been hearing associated with music since, I've been hearing about drill since drill and bass, way back in the 90s, which I don't know that I ever went anywhere. Trap I've been hearing about since TI. Um, and bashment I'd heard a little bit about around the turn of the century. I think I heard that term when I looked up who is this elephant man guy and, and what's going on here. So it seems like, you're kind of leading, I mean, you're you're playing catch up because as you say, I feel like music writers are just now beginning to, I think we pretty thoroughly digested the 90s. But now this whole new 20 years has gone by and there's been so much change and so much trying to figure out what's going on that scholarly we're way behind on the 21st century. And, and so I feel like you're definitely kind of playing catch up, but also looking ahead to something that's incipient, if not yet fully formed. Because do you feel like people um, like, say, Lil Got It uh, and the late Pop Smoke felt like they were doing something comparable and aligned with what's going on in Jamaica? Or do you feel like these people are just kind of chasing after the same acorn without being aware of what each other is doing. Do, do you see a new name coming out for this omni-genre coming from the people in the scene rather than writers imposing it? Well, I mean, the, I think uh, to answer the specific question, um, I, don't think the, I don't think the American artists would be particularly aware of the Jamaican music. But you did have this thing happening pretty much simultaneously, but independently 
of um of yeah both both american rap uh, and uh, jamaican dance all evolving into what i refer to as vocal psychedelia um I'm sure. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I think most genres. You know, if you if you were to tell an artist they made a genre of music, most of the time they say no. I'm sure that's particularly with rock musicians. They go, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't want any labels and all that. So um, I think the artists probably wouldn't particularly refer to, to what they're doing as a new genre. But I think it's so. What's been happening now with the, with the kind of extremes of the digitized voice or the post-human voice? is so different from what we traditionally understood rap to be or trap to be or bashment or dancehall or any of these things that the the difference between them is, is is as radical as the difference between say house was to disco or that uh rap was to funk so it is a whole new kind of genre that's been born uh and hopefully uh people you know writers will start acknowledging that and that become a you know the, there'll be a terminology developed where we can really actually kind of acknowledge that wider in the culture so so far we've got the not so pithy vocal psychedelia but it'd be nice if we could have a nice little catching buzz term for all this new music that's been developed yeah we need a we need a four or five level letter word with some nice hard consonants like trap or drill um but let's catch up with mumble rap a little bit this is little baby get ugly we'll hear this and then you can kind of catch us up on the whole mumble mumble rap to frag rack frag rap transition that was little babies get ugly so tell us quickly what's mumble rap how does it evolve out of trap? I guess start with trap. What's trap? How does it evolve out of mumble rap? And then we'll segue into frag rap from there. Right. So trap, I would say, is a, is a style of a rap or hip hop that's based on uh, 808. So these are certain types of uh, drum machine sounds. So 808 drum sounds. Uh, and you're probably thinking you want to below 100 BPM. So quite slow, lethargic drum sounds. That's trap. I think it kind of... Um, at the turn of the 2010s, you got a bit more of a, a muscular reimagining of that kind of sound. So with big, big, heavy, booming basses. And that would have come from a mainly producer called Lex Luger. Also got Mike Will made it. So they made a, they kind of transformed the sound into what we recognize it to be now. So I think before it sounded a little bit kind of Fisher-Price, my first drum machine stuff. Whereas that, that made it a bit more of a grandiose sound. So then from trap you have mumble rap evolve mumble rap is generally used to be quite a broad range of things i mean you could almost talk about any kind of rap or a lot of the rap from you know the mid 2000s people refer to um, the mid 2010s people refer to mumble rap i i try and be a bit more specific uh with mumble rap i'm i'm speaking really about again it's this kind of it's this american style of vocal psychedelia so it'd be about taking the auto-tune and and combining it with some degree of vocal extremity or vocal peculiarity that would actually bring out some kind of what you could call a phonetic futurism in the voice. So that's that was how I was using the term mumble rap in the book. 
and you've got a line that is just so good. I want to I want to quote you again. Um, you introduce your section on mumble rap <clears throat> with a, a heading becoming biological. And then you open the section by saying one of mumble rap's big breakthroughs was taking the sound of auto tune and turning it into something squishy, sticky, viscous and liquefied. It's like H.P. Lovecraft took over hip hop here. <laughs> what? Um, and also the other thing about mumble rap <clears throat> is that's a term that was originally pejorative. I mean, it was lyrical, older lyrical rappers dissing mumble rappers. And that's another thing that set off my radar. I was, it reminded me of the fights about punk rock. Whenever you get old guys who have perfected, and women too, whenever you get older artists who've perfected a form of, a set of techniques to make a form of music, and those techniques then become more and more rococo, you tend to get this next generation that comes along and throws it all out and starts over. And is that a fair characterization of what's going on with mumble rap? Is it kind of the punk rock rock of hip hop? Well, I mean, absolutely. Or as I said, even beyond that, it's like uh, it'd be like uh, what craft craft was to rock or something, where it's actually you're changing the, such a paradigm shift craft work you probably really wouldn't consider rock anymore it's the beginning of a whole kind of synthesizer lineage that gets you for you know through i feel love it gets you through into you know electro and house and techno and all that and so i think yeah this thing of you know so so if you think rap right from sugar hill gang all the way up to waka fucker flank you know so rap from the late 70s all the way up into the early first half of the 2010s you had this one characteristic which was the rhythmic spoken word that kept everything within this neat genre package so you could see that what sugar hill gang were doing is the same thing as what wu-tang clan were doing and what you know ti was doing and so on what lil wayne was doing they were all doing the rhythmic spoken word and then of course what's happened now with mumble rap and with vocal psychedelia is that now it's it's the it's the digitized voice as synthesizer it's a whole new paradigm so it's not about internal rhymes it's not about punchlines it's not about lyricism it's not about bars it's actually um you know it's actually about well what kind of timbral things can you do so what what with the sound of the voice the digitized voice what can you do with that so it's a it, the, the uh, paradigm through which you could understand rap you can't understand this new music so i think yeah the, it's actually the breakthroughs on the level of what you might say between craft work and and more traditional rock would have been or I'd argue like what hip hop was to funk, clearly derived and descended from, but a major break in the way the, the music was made and key values like being able to play instruments were just completely thrown out. Um, so Mumble Rap, you mentioned Lex Luger as an important producer. Who are some of the key artists and producers that, that helped transform Mumble Rap into this new thing? Well, I mean, the thing is, of course, so I think because the defining quality of the music is the vocals. You'd kind of, the main pioneers, so I think you'd have people like Future and Young Thug, I think uh, to a lot of people, they're the kind of decanonized artists. For me, actually, I'd say they're a bit of a precursor to the most interesting stuff. Uh, so I think, that, but those two are very important, I think, for kind of introducing the ideas into rap. So the kind of, the peculiar vocal deliveries, the kind of, uh, playing with auto-tune, what you can do with auto-tune, you know, say a mum how a mumble delivery might affect auto-tune and so forth. But then after them, so you had Lil Baby, who you played, you had Lil Gottit, who you mentioned, um, quite obscure artist called Johnny Cinco, I really like, um, you know, Travis Scott, you know, so there's a whole wave of them, I think, 
that get particularly interesting actually more towards the end of the 2010s. Uh, then in terms of instrumental producers, you kind of had a, you have a, like murder beats and uh, Buddha on the beat and all that. So you have kind of a, a whole instrumental way that more focuses on ambience. There's a strange kind of what I call a, a kind of a digi pastoralism. So weird things where you're getting these almost folk revivalist flutes or you're getting um, kind of world music-y things, almost John Hassel like soundscapes as well and so i think that kind of that plays into the kind of the druggy psychedelic element of the music as well and what's the regional aspect of mumble rap are there any particular cities or regions that have led the way in mumble rap or is it something that because of soundcloud and the internet is sort of dispersed at least throughout the united states and the greater black atlantic uh, I think Atlanta seems to be the focal point of it. As Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta's probably been the focal point for rap for at least 10 or 15 years. But uh, I think Atlanta's the focal point. I think uh, Travis Scott might come from Houston. So you have little bits, bits and pieces from elsewhere, but I think it is really an Atlanta-centric thing, which is probably an interesting aspect of the Neon Screams stuff in general, actually, is that in this internet age, so much of it is hyper-localized. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. There's these really like micro genres like footwork um, and others that it kind of reminds me of Go-Go back in the 80s, which was this Washington, D.C. offshoot of funk that had some national hits and is still active in D.C., but never went beyond. And you've got even smaller, more localized scenes um, in Brooklyn and Chicago and other places. And I do want to say Travis Scott, definitely a Texan. So we like to shout out to our Texans. He's been having a hard time recently after the given tragedy. So, yeah, I want to acknowledge that. Um, and you didn't mention that T.I. is kind of the father of of trap and he came out of Atlanta as well. So, yeah, Atlanta, huge on this on this uh, regional map. But now let's hear from our sponsor real quick. And when we come back. I want you to tell us about Frag Rap, which is where you see this, the next step of the evolution of this form. And so we've heard a little bit about mumble rap and all of this, I feel like I'm not doing these things. I feel like we're just beginning to skim the surface that you've shined a light on something that has been way undercovered, something that I'm way behind on. And, and so we're moving through this stuff quick, but this is big territory and I think I think you're right that there's massive innovations to come, and there's also a lot of history to be documented. But you talk about mumble rap as this particular thing, and and I kind of that resonated with me because I've been following some mumble rap artists for a few years now, and that whole H.P. Lovecraft slime thing made sense. But frag rap was kind of new to me. What is it, and who's doing it, and how is it different than mumble rap? Well, uh, frag rap's my coinage. Uh... It's a uh, and it's a good one. Well, thank you. It's uh, yeah. So frag rap is in fragmented rap is the uh, where it comes from. Uh, and so basically, you had this kind of thing. At, I guess at the end of the 2010s, you'd have these kind of hyper fragmented styles of or kind of variation of mumble rap, really, uh, where you'd kind of a lot of the raps were based on the very staccato uh, performances that were based, you know, one or two syllables at a time, and you'd have these things called ad libs, which traditionally in rap with a kind of people shouting yeah or okay in the background of the rap uh, and what these done they've been brought to the forefront uh, and they basically intersect within the flow so you're getting this kind of almost like two two cogs with these teeth you know intersecting that's how so that's kind of how the rhythmic machinery operates in this music uh, to me i think the big pioneers were uh, migos and particularly 
Quavo. I think the best the best kind of long player example of it would be this album called Huncho Jack, which is a Quavo and Travis Scott collaboration. Uh, I think Playboy Carti does a quite a he does a kind of very uh, etherealized version of it uh, as well. I mean, you see it because it, it, it kind of bleeds into mumble rap. You've got lots of examples of you know Little Got It doing it as well. And Rax wax rhetorical a little bit about frag rack, frag rap because you say it's very different than mumble rap. What's different about it, and why is it sort of grandiose? Well, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you've got a couple of things. I think yeah, the, the rhythmic. It's just operating on a totally different rhythmic language uh, than mumble rap, and so and the rhythmic language. I mean, I suppose it, for me to say it may maybe. Uh, it's something you got to hear to really kind of comprehend uh, actually how compelling it is. Um, but so there's the rhythmic thing. Then there's also, I suppose, some of the the kind of the more vague sound worlds or aesthetics the artists are using. You're, you're moving away from that H.P. Lovecraft thing to yeah, as you say, something a bit more majestic sounding in, in the instrumentals and all that. Um, but yeah, no, I think the. Uh, I think also what's interesting about it in terms of what it captures in the zeitgeist. So I think the kind of information economy of those rhythms, where it's all these very little snippets of sonic information in terms of the vocals kind of uh, leaping out at you in rapid succession. I think that's very much the information economy of how it feels to be on the Internet a lot of the time with Twitter or with TikTok, where you're kind of just getting these small bursts of stimuli repeatedly coming out of different places at you. So it's a kind of very much captures the kind of almost what you like to be pretentious about it, the kind of cognitive zeitgeist of the kind of late 2010s, I think. And this is where it pains me because there's so many songs I would like to play for people. And I had not picked up <clears throat> an example of Frog Rap, but it seems like Cocoon by the Migos, by Migos is one of the key tracks. Is that a fair statement? I'd, I, I, in the book, I think I say that's the kind of the pioneering one. I mean, I'm sure there were things of them having done these kind of fragmented rhythms before, but I think that's the track that you then you're also combining that with the with the digitized voice. So that to me, that's actually kind of the blueprint for all the stuff that happened for the next two or three years afterwards. Cool. And I'm not picking that one because I've got a personal favorite I wanted to play that I don't know is this historically significant, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but now we're going to go to England and UK drill and what you call the aesthetics of anonymity. Where does drill fit into the whole picture? What's going on with British musical history in the last 20 years? And how is it like because historically... British hip-hop has been sort of the red-headed stepchild of the hip-hop world. I mean, until grime, it was never even really acknowledged by the rest of the hip-hop world. Um, but then, you know, over the course of the, the, the knots, you know, a few grime artists burst out and made some international impact. But now you've got this weird, almost cross-Atlantic collaboration between London and Brooklyn going on. Give us a, I guess, give us a quick history of drill. Start with Chief Keefe in Chicago, because to my knowledge, that's where the word first is used. How does that get to London and Brooklyn? And why do these subgenres sound so different? All right, well, uh, strap in. <laughs> so we've got, um, so I guess at the turn of the 2010s or in the early 2010s, I suppose you'd had, the, you'd had this period in the 2000s of rap 
either being kind of party music or being very commercial music. It could even be kind of nerd music in terms of backpacker rap. It's internet music. So you kind of lost, I think, its connection to the grittier end of, you know, the kind of grittier street sensibilities. And so Chicago Drill was significant in that it really brought it back to that. So in Chicago, I'm sure it's sort of an awful spate of gun violence and gang violence and all that. And the music emerged out of that uh, moment in Chicago history. Uh, sonically, uh, I'd argue it was it was less interesting. It's more of a kind of a, an attitude and a lyrical uh, or a kind of even a cultural phenomenon with the more interesting aspect of it rather than the sonics. The sonics were similar to kind of what you were getting with Lex Luger pr- productions. Uh, but, um, but there were these kind of a few handful of interesting tracks where they were quite sophisticated rhythmically. You weren't just getting your normal rap or trap backbeat but you're actually getting this kind of weird hyper syncopated music and uh and so i think it was basically uh, that very much appealed to uk producers and audiences so the uk uh, due to our uh, kind of history in terms of uh, caribbean immigration uk music has this very uh, kind of uh, kind of distinctive rhythmic sensibility and you could hear that in genres like jungle and as you say, grime as well. They're not just your normal backbeats like you get with most music. It's kind of hypersyncopated. And, uh, and so I suppose the UK drill producers, uh, by the middle of the 2010s, they were taking these one or two, or maybe or several kind of Chicago drill syncopated tracks, and they were taking that aesthetic, they were recreating it, and they are taking it further. There's the kind of, maybe not intentional, but you do have these kind of folk echoes of, things like jungle or grime or UK funky, which is another genre in UK drill. And so then uh, that's how you get UK drill. Then ironically, it kind of goes back to America uh, as then Brooklyn artists, Brooklyn rappers start using UK drill instrumentals uh, towards the kind of turn of the 2020s. And so with that summary of the history Let's hear one of the tracks. This is from a group that you called One Rap Collective, working with one auteur producer who truly uncovered the uncanny, 67 and Carnes Hill. So let's hear um, 67's Church, and then you can tell us what was going on with this, this gang. Jill time, have me doing it at planning. Smoking and watching pure TV, have me screaming out free max branding. That's massive bits and draws, packs of am and text on the landing. I got a lip bones on a Sunday, I reappear churches and matting, satin. Still, I gotta pray for my sins. Forgive me. I done a lot of dirt, but I'm innocent, chilling with streets on the wing. And he just got a 623, man, I pray I don't pay for the work I put in. So that was Church by 67. And again, I've got to quote you. You say, Carnes Hill makes you feel as though you're phasing in and out of physical existence. Choral samples stutter. Murmuring instrumentation gets mangled like an alien broadcast being battered as it travels through an asteroid field. Tell us a little bit more about these guys. Uh, well, so six seven are a uh, you know a rap collective from a place in London. So I think they're from Brixton Hill. So there's this whole area of activity that's both kind of the centre of UK drill, but also sort of gang activity in London. So Tulse Hill, Brixton Hill, that kind of thing. So they're from there, and Carnes Hill is this yeah this sort of auto producer and uh, 
he was really the kind of pioneer of UK drill. And so, yeah, at this kind of moment in the middle of the 2010s, just before UK drill really establishes itself. So even before you've kind of got the kind of distinctive rhythmic language in the drums where he was just making these amazing beats. So I think in a decade where, you know, I'd argue the um, the most innovative music was happening through the auto-tuned voice, he did actually really stand out as being a kind of someone whose instrumentals were just kind of completely otherworldly and not really like anything you'd heard before. Yeah, that was one thing I was fascinated in. It seems like the UK drill artists are not doing as much with the auto-tune on the vocals. That They're kind of the one area right now that you put into this greater omni-genre where the focus is really on the backbeats. Is that a fair... You could, you know, you could pick your top 100 favourite UK drill tracks and not a single one of them would have auto-tune. So, I mean, uh, yeah, no, the uh, the uh, drill drill's very much a... I think what you could say is basically... Say in the 90s, you had the UK music was very kind of sci-fi, very druggy, quite flamboyant in terms of things like, you know, jungle or UK garage. Whereas American rap was or American street music, it was quite cool. It was kind of very documentarian. You know, it's kind of really uh, kind of showing you what was going on in places like New York and L.A. at the time. And the music, though amazing, was was less innovative and less kind of. Uh, futuristic and i think that dynamic has inversed in the 2010s so now that places like america and jamaica are making the most druggy psychedelic futuristic flamboyant music whereas the uk is making stuff that's that's very much more traditional notions of street call are operating in the music but it is less innovative so yeah now uk drill very much just doesn't really fit at all in with vocal psychedelia what are the kind of interesting things in it uh, things like the drum patterns or the basses, so you get these very kind of elasticated bass sounds um, in UK drill. And so that actually ties it more into a 90s notion of musical innovation, which is more about the instrumentation rather than the vocals. And since I was always a beat guy, I'm glad to hear that somebody's flying the flag and, and progressing it forward. Because for a long time, say 10, 11 years ago, when I was trying to occasionally just see well what's new and i would come across all kinds of random crap on the internet it's very hard to parse out what's what since i'm not connected with any of these scenes personally and i'm not on the street um far from it and things like vaporwave was something that i was sort of aware of that plays into this is that a fair assessment or is it just that they <clears throat> carnes hill got is playing with some of the ideas that the vaporwave people were playing can you explain what vaporwave is real quick and then how it relates to this so Vaporwave, uh, I mean, I don't know if it was almost sort of supposed to be kind of ironic. Because, I mean, Vaporwave, this sort of internet genre, maybe the first real kind of genre that emerged solely from internet culture. Um, and I guess, I mean, I don't, it was sort of things of you'd kind of slow down kind of very cheesy, smooth jazz and that kind of thing. And it had this kind of, it had this kind of visual iconography with it as well. Um, and I think it was sort of, it's, it, it, it in turn influenced kind of other internet genres, one of them being a thing called cloud rap, which is basically just kind of by ambient trap beats. And cloud rap, you know, kind of uh, not particularly remarkable in and of itself, but actually ended up influencing the whole kind of sound world of right up to this day, where basically a lot of the... Uh, yeah, a lot of the aesthetics of modern music focus on ambience, focus on the ethereal, on sort of dr kind of sonic dreamscapes and all that. And so you could see that all kind of uh, tracing back 
lineage-wise to Vaporwave, even though I'm, I'm sure there's not many kind of modern rap people would have any idea what Vaporwave is. But I think it's interesting because then you do have these notions. Uh, there's a kind of a thinker called Luke Davis who actually uh, interviews me in the back of the book. And he has this notion of what he calls dematerialization, so that actually kind of digital existence, so the way we operate online is very unphysical. So uh, I think this music reflects that kind of lack of physicality. There are these, you're missing a lot of the, the usual physical signifiers you get in music. And so I think you could say all this internet era music taps into that kind of phenomenology. Yeah, I think that's fair and it's exciting and, and has this explanatory value where I'm reading this stuff, I'm going, aha, that that's making sense of what I'm hearing. And so this is kind of a ridiculous comparison, but Vaporwave seems like one of these things that was sort of avant-garde. I would compare it to something like Stockhausen that ends up some of his ideas become adopted by people like Paul McCartney and hip-hop artists who had varying degrees of either very aware of Stockhausen or not at all agree aware of, of um, music concrete and the, these other ideas, but actually go out and execute it in such a way that people dance to it and, and it becomes this living music. And it seems like something similar happened in a much more compressed time frame uh, with vapor and, and cloud rap and going into this stuff. But again, we got to move on because so much is going on. Let's take it to Brooklyn. And you've got this quote, at the beginning of your Brooklyn Drill section, it says, rather than flattening out music into a universal Benetton-like mush, one curious byproduct of the web's global reach is that it has enabled incredibly localized sounds oriented to the very specific and parochial needs of their originated communities to find audiences in far-flung corners of the globe. Then you reference the hip, hipster discovery of footwork, which is a Chicago genre. I think I might have put it in Brooklyn a minute earlier, but that was just me misspeaking. But anyway, how does Brooklyn Drill come into this? And to my knowledge, this is the first time that American rappers have paid any attention to the work of UK hip-hop producers. I mean, it's got to be, definitely, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because basically London, which is where UK Drill came from, is similar to Brooklyn insofar as they both have these kind of large Caribbean and Jamaican uh, immigrant communities. And so I think, as I said before, London's rhythmic aesthetic uh, largely comes from Jamaican dancehall music. And so I suppose there is an argument to be made uh, that Brooklyn, the reason Brooklyn responded to the, to the kind of rhythmic aesthetic of UK drill is that it does have this kind of uh, parent, genre being dancehall so if these if you have jamaicans in brooklyn who are listening to dancehall they may kind of uh get get uk drill better than other people in different parts of america uh, and yeah so brooklyn drill is this genre that's sort of similar to drill but has kind of managed to take on a, its own qualities in a lot of way i think it's it's uh the production the beats they're kind of because i think uk drill was very very homogenized during its sort of golden age that was sort of 2017 ish it's always these very kind of bleak funeral march pianos. So it was so many of the tracks for all this. The Brooklyn drill is nice because you've kind of taken the rhythmic aesthetic of drill, but then you're you're having a bit far more diverse array of kind of instrumentation in the tracks. So it's a kind of a nice variation. And how explain the whole phenomenon of of SoundCloud and MixCloud and the way that the beats got across the Atlantic and and the the labeling, how that played a role in it. So you have, uh, you know, kids will make a track and they'll and they'll 
uh, upload it to YouTube or to SoundCloud or whatever, and they'll call it a type beat. And so, you know, if you, if you, if in your wildest dreams, you wanted young thugs to rap over your beat, you might type in young thug type beat, put it on YouTube and you'd have a thing where, you know, some young rapper can buy it for $50 or however, $10, however much it is. So I suppose what happened with that is Brooklyn drill people were probably typing in drill type beat and they were probably looking for something like a Chicago type beat. And of course, just by way of the internet, you type in drill type beat and you get, you get UK drill. And so, uh, and so it is this kind of, uh, almost this mistake of they, they were looking for the Chicago thing and just by the accident of the internet, they ended up getting the British variation instead. And that to me is really awesome. That, Again, from the sort of studies we've been doing on this, when you get a new technology changing the way musicians interact with each other and crossing regional lines, to me, that's an indication that you're that something is happening that's going to be important. And with Brooklyn Drill, there's a pretty big tragedy because Pop Smoke is kind of the avatar of Brooklyn Drill, I would say, and he's already been taken from us. So has that really damaged the the growth of the genre? Uh, it did. I mean, I, I, I've had friends say to me that as soon as he died, they, I mean, the, the kind of things that they only got interested in it when he released this album, Meet the Wu 2. And then, yeah, and he died not long after the release and already they'd kind of given up on it. It did seem to kind of really damage the music, uh, just in terms of its sort of commercial trajectory, if not, it may, if not something kind of uh, deeper in the music as well. Yeah, no, it's sort of a, not been quite the same since really and so now we're going to make another change we're going to go back to the caribbean and this is a song i just had to to use this is big voice doing cheddar and you describe this as if the aurora borealis could sing so this is big voice not the aurora borealis singing cheddar cheddar Returning to Jamaica on our whirlwind tour of of the last ten years, and you call this section bashment at the turn of the 2020s, and it's bashment after cartel. What's going on here? It's still Jamaica, but Trinidad is making an impact in the scene as well. This and it's and from watching your website, it seems like this is where the really exciting stuff is coming out right now. Well, uh, yeah, so in 2020, uh, I mean, you're speaking of Pop Smoke dying. Sadly, the same thing happened to uh, his artist, Rebel Six. Now, to me, he's the uh, he's definitely the best artist of, of the year 2020. He died in that year as well. Um, and he was an artist from Trinidad. And he, uh, he, was, he did a kind of a different take on vocal psychedelia. Because I think a lot of the people we've been talking about, they've been more of a performance-based vocal psychedelia. So the kind of in the way they're getting interesting sounds is to doing something novel with their voice through auto-tune. His his take was more about a kind of production-based vocal psychedelia. So you'd you'd have the auto-tuned voice and then you would have these kind of massive reverbs on it. You'd have these things called harmony engines, which kind of 
make a million sort of harmonies on your voice at a time and all that. And so to me, he was kind of in many ways the quintessential vocal psychedelic artist. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, uh, he, I mean, if you were to kind of have a Mount Rushmore of vocal psychedelia, it, you know, for me, it would include Vibes Cartel, it would include Rebel Six. And then there's also a Jamaican artist called Tommy Lee Sparta, uh, who, who kind of got big a little bit earlier. Uh, and he, he kind of has this bizarre way of doing his voice that almost sounds like a kind of an electrified version of a snake charmer's flute or something. Uh, and that's very much the point where you're kind of hearing the, the digitized voice becoming the new synth because it's just this totally alien sound you could not have imagined in any decade before. And you, you sum it up pretty well in the book. You say that um, this adaptation of Chicago Drill, uh, you say, I'll, I'll just read the whole thing. I'm going to read a couple more sentences than I thought I would. I'll start with this. Just as Chicago Drill had facilitated British street music returning back to its roots, Trap has given Jamaica a template through which it's created a glorious, unmistakable sound of its own. It's made the globalized localized, and in the process provided us with the latest in a decades-long, and I'd argue centuries-long, line of combinations and mutations that have been produced across the Atlantic between America, Jamaica, and the UK. I'd throw in Cuba uh, in there as well um, throughout the ages. And so, yeah, and you say, as always, it's also amazing. So I absolutely um, agree. This is exciting stuff. I have no pretension of being anything but a dilettante in this area, but that's what I'm doing with this whole project is just sort of skipping a rock across, you know, this entire history of recorded music that we have access to that I believe maybe we are at peak music where we have access right now to more recorded music than anybody ever has. And I'd argue maybe that anybody ever will. And that brings us sort of to the end uh, and your final interview with Mr. Davis where you sort of acknowledge, he asks you basically, why was this retromania thing happening? Why were people worried about the future? And was there a reason for it? And how do you feel we've kind of gotten out of that? Were we in a rut there at the end of the knots? And, and have we emerged from it? I, uh, I, think, I think there's, there's slightly strange timing when things like retromania were written because you had just had cartel doing his auto shoot, but I think it did very it did very much tap into even how I was feeling. And again, I'm a sort of young bloke, how I was feeling in the early 2010s. I mean, I do remember even saying to people, it's such a shame the future happened before I was alive type thing. Now I do not feel like that at all. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think the early 2010s, the first half of that decade really was this horrible, horrible rut. Nothing interesting was happening, even things that in retrospect you can kind of say were kind of, uh, you know, proto-vocal psychedelia. They were just these kind of weird st starting and stopping, hiccuping moments of musical brilliance that just went nowhere. So I think, um, so no, I think it articulates something very real in the early 2010s, but now, no, 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 it's uh, absolutely a golden age. I think you could, um, you can hold up the best of the music happening now and you can hold it up to any of the music from previous decades. And it really is just as unprecedented, just as, innovative it really does feel like this whole new kind of gulf opening up in the way that hip-hop would have done when it first started or rock would have done when it first started or house and all these things no i think we've definitely overcome retromania well that's very reassuring to hear and i hope that any of our listeners who are coming from say a count basie place or a Jimi hendrix place uh who've ridden this ridden this far with us 
um, will be open-minded and, and acknowledge that stuff's still happening. The world moves on, even if all, us old people don't. So Kit McIntosh, thanks so much for um, articulating what's happening for us and that the future is still going on, this amazing cross-pollination of cultures that's been going on ever since sort of the original sin of, of cross-Atlantic slave trade began uh, in the 1600s and keeps making these musical mutations. So even out of, it's almost like Tolkien-esque, even out of the most evil things, these beautiful things arise. So Kit, the book is Neon Screams, How Drill, Trap, and Bashment Made Music New Again. And my guest has been Kit McIntosh. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And I really look forward to what you do next. Thank you very much. It's been great. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is, that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Henry H. Sapoznik to discuss his CD compilation, Proto Billy, the minstrel and Ten Pan Alley DNA of country music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com.